today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. With the focus on vaccines uh, these last couple of months, we've heard less and less about rapid testing, which is surprising an awful lot of people. Experts say they are the key in the fight to stopping and containing outbreaks of the pandemic especially now that we're talking about variants and the, uh, the virus as well. So while the federal government says it has procured tens of millions of testing devices, apparently only a small portion of these are actually in use in Canada, and that's a bit of a problem. Global's Abigail Beeman reports. The rapid antigen tests are not perfect. They're not a replacement for laboratory-based PCR tests, uh, but they're certainly better than no tests, and they can be used widely in schools, workplaces, and other settings uh, to prevent outbreaks and limit the size of the outbreaks. Dr. Irfan Dalla co-chairs Canada's Testing and Screening Advisory Expert Panel. Its new report calls the deployment of rapid tests a priority. Ottawa has purchased more than 40.5 million tests, but only 15.4 million have arrived so far, with the rest slated to arrive by the end of March. Dalla says no one can really answer why Canada hasn't used more, but he suspects it's due to the traditional tests' higher quality and the current focus on vaccines. So that's the dilemma, and I think we have to make some hard decisions, or at least I guess the politicians have to make some hard decisions, but I hope it's evidence-based. Uh, joining us to talk about all of this is David Junker. Uh, uh, David is a, a full professor and chair with the Department of Biomedical Engineering at McGill University. Uh, professor, thank you so very much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm going to sp- ask you to speculate. Why aren't we using rapid tests? I mean, from the descriptor, and I get that, that okay, they may not be as effective as, as the, uh, the test that we're using to a greater extent. But uh, we're, we're getting to a point right now with, with new you know, variations on the virus and everything else. I mean, we, we've got to start cho- choosing and maybe even changing some of the weaponry we're using to battle this virus. Right, yeah. So I, 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 mean, I, I have been advocating for using them since since uh, last uh, August. And so, uh, of course, I'm also puzzled why it's taking so long and so slow and, and, and the process is so slow. And, and you know, coming back to your comment, I don't think these tests are actually not effective because these tests are really, the rapid tests are, are, are really finely tuned to capture people who are infectious. And, and, and one of the reasons why we're not um, having them is, I think, is, is this, this cultural uh, or this, this this cultural attachment to having a test that's used for diagnosis and being a very precise diagnostic test, which as a medical pr- practitioner, if you have a patient in your practice, you want to really know whether he has a disease. But when we're speaking public health, what's important is that we find people who spread the disease. And actually for that application, rapid tests, I would argue, are more efficient than PCR tests because a lot of the positives in PCR tests will be people who are not infectious anymore. And so that makes it even more uh, unfortunate that we're not using them more widely, actually. Well, you've just, I think, done a a wonderful job of characterizing exactly what we're looking for here. And, you know, whatever our mindset and what our priorities might have been back then, where we are in this fight against this virus, as it turns out right now, is trying to stop the spread. I mean, you know, we were told right from the outset, weren't we, Professor, flatten the curve. And that means stop the spread of the the virus. Uh, If you've got a test that does it better than others, I mean, isn't, isn't that where we should be focusing our energies? Yeah, I think we're talking. To, you're talking to the core here, so so. Yeah, I'm yeah, singing exactly to the choir. That, I know. Yeah, that's exactly uh, where we are. And so, why, why are we not going? So, they, they, what, I mean, part has. I think it's really a, the system has had to change, right? We haven't we haven't had a pandemic in a hundred years, and so all our institutions, everything has been geared toward this. this I would call like very safe and precautious medicine. 
and, and we're still a bit in that kind of culture and, and people haven't really reset their mindset. And, and so the mind, like we're saying, you know, has been very focused on precaution. Oh, what about if the test gives you a false negative? Whereas we should be really thinking about a risk-benefit analysis. And, and, and when we change the mindset into that approach, then I think it becomes very clear that these tests have a big role to play. And you, you were mentioning uh, the, the advisory panel earlier. And so I think that's mm-hmm. a really first very important step where now they start to shift and recognize the real potential of these rapid tests. But, you know, this has been, I mean, we have already, we can see it from the points of the successes. Early on, Health Canada was very negative about rapid tests. And it's only in September that they changed their mind, and then they can, to their credit, then they quickly approve. I mean, they, they, they called out for rapid tests. They approved, and actually they, they procured a large number of them and then provided them to the provinces. And then the province received them, and then every province, and here's the bureaucracy, every province now did their own study on these rapid tests. And most of them came actually to quite negative um, uh, outcome, again, based on the fact that some might give you negative results. And, uh, and I think the first positive um, light here is, is, I think, the federal report and also, I think, the pilot studies that were done in Nova Scotia. And I think they're actually very important. So I don't know if, you have, if your audience have heard about it. There was a doctor who, who, went, who took this rapid test and actually using volunteers made these pop-up sites to test people in the community, using not medical professionals, but actually uh, volunteers to do the testing. And, and I think that was a great way to show that it can be done. It can even be done without actually uh, um, tapping into the resources of the, of the medical system, which are really stretched very thin now, and could then provide these benefits uh, to everyone. Well, that's an interesting point. And, and I, I know that you're absolutely right. I mean, in, in the initial stages, they weren't crazy about rapid testing. They weren't crazy about face masks either in the initial stages. Uh, and I, and I, I give them a pass on that, though, Professor, because we didn't know much about what we were dealing with. And as you discover more about that, you change the protocol and you say, you know what, the masks are a good idea after all. And, hey, the rapid testing is a better uh, idea than we thought it was initially. I mean, you know, how far back in medical history do we want to go? I mean, you know, as as I said on the show last week, we used to treat people with headaches with leeches, you know, figuring that was going to relieve the pressure. We know better now. And we know know a lot more about coronavirus and especially COVID-19 than we did 12 months ago, which is why... I think we have to have that discussion, uh, and the advisory panel, I think, strongly recommended that, that, you know what, it's time to revisit this. It might be part of the solution here. Yeah. No, so I think the, and, you know, f- first it was this, so these models about the, so, I mean, the, 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 the so Michael Mina and, and, and they, Dan Laramore, they have this early publication, actually, it came out end of June already, showing that rapid testing, frequent rapid testing could kind of curb the pandemic within a month or two, right? And, and I think that still stands, this, this notion. And, and I think we have one example of one country that has implemented them at large scale, n- not at the high frequency that they recommended. It's only, I mean, so they, like twice a week was recommended, but Slovakia did two rapid tests for the entire population at a, at a, at a, with a timing, I think, one week or two. And by doing it just twice, they were able to... to to um, reduce the incidence of the virus by 60% just in, in these two cycles. And then they, unfortunately they stopped, and as expected, once you stop the testing, then of course the virus uh, catches back up again. Sure. Further proof that really the testing made this big difference. And, and this, but this is now a study that's back from November, right? And, and so the data is here, but it, it's just very difficult to, to have the data uh, 
percolating to all the public health uh, decision makers and, and political action on that front. Well, let's talk about the practicality of what you're suggesting here, though, Professor, because I think we need to get into that area of it, too, uh, because we're not talking about this in the hypothetical. Uh, you know, it's great. Okay, that's a great test, and we can test a lot more people quickly, more quickly, and that's fabulous. But, you know, one of the big complaints we've got about this, of course, is are the economic impacts of this virus and, and the way it, it's ruining our economy. We want to get the stores open again. We want to get people out shopping again. Uh, if you're using rapid testing, as you say, statistics indicate that that knocks the curve down much faster than what we have been doing. Uh, and if we do that and combine that with the wearing of the face masks and social distancing and those numbers start to go down, stores start to open again. And, and all of a sudden, you know, it's it's not going to eradicate the, the, the virus, but it's certainly going to make it a lot more practical for us to be able to exist once again and move more in that direction. It seems to me this is not the silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems, but it seems to me to be, a, I think, a major tool in moving toward that goal, and that should be our goal. Yes, so, so exactly. I mean, I, I don't know if you have seen the Swiss cheese model of, of you know, all these different layers of stopping the disease. So that will be an additional layer. It doesn't mean you should stop the other one, but it's an additional layer and would give you a really added protection, which means to some degree you could, well, and one way of stopping the virus is lockdowns. That means you have yeah. a rapid test. You can relax this other one and, and remove the lockdowns so that we could start uh, uh, operating again. Now, there is obstacles in, in administering these rapid tests. And, and this, again, goes back also to, to our initial, you know, the Health Canada was very reluctant about rapid tests. And of course, the, the companies who develop rapid tests getting these signals, the first rapid tests they developed were the, the one that they were most likely to get regulatory approval. And that was a rapid test where you take a nasopharyngeal sample, because that's what had already been kind of shown initially with PCR, administered by a health professional. Because that's the smallest hurdle you have to take to get regulatory approval. And, and that's the first test we got approved. But now, as you would like to deploy them, well, they... You know, the, the testing itself, the result is very fast, but you still have this, this, this personnel that normally needs to be there to provide, administer these rapid tests. Mm -hmm. That's where the, the study from Nova Scotia is really, I think, groundbreaking in showing, no, actually, we do not need a medical professional. So even though the tests have been approved that way, we could actually use them slightly off-label, which is something we have we've been discussing now for vaccines for a while, right, using only one dose instead of two dose. Yeah. So we could use, for example, well, someone else get administered, and that, that has now been shown that this can really work. Also, instead of a nasopharyngeal swab, you could actually use a, a frontal nasal swab. And actually, the companies now, they are implementing that, and, and many of the tests we have here, they are now, the similar tests are approved in Europe now, for example, for nasal frontal swabbing. But we could even take it one step further. You could potentially use these swabs to go in the mouth and, and work with saliva. And, and these are... This, the governments or the authorities could have been motors in, in driving these tests, in driving pilots to find out, in driving pilots to establish these rapid testing protocols, to find ways, to basically find ways to use these tools and creative ways to use these tools in the best, best possible way and the most efficient way to, to, to suppress the disease. And, and because, you know, we're speaking, I think you, we're speaking about opening schools, I think now in Ontario as well. So mm -hmm. if you want to have like regular, regular testing of students in front of schools, this, I think it's possible, but this is logistically a challenge. And, and that would take, of course, time to deploy and, and establish these protocols and find the best uh, efficient way to administer these tests. 
The test itself, though, as you've just described, it's less intrusive than the one that we're used to seeing, the, the swab that goes up the nostril. And I, I, I know, and I'm sure you've heard anecdotally, at least, uh, uh, you know, Professor, some people say, I'm not going to get tested. I don't want that, and that thing going up there. That's, it's, that's sore. That looks painful. Uh, this, this is a lot easier, and I think it probably a lot more people might say, yeah, okay, maybe it's worthwhile. So, yeah, I think you, 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 you bring up a very important point is the convenience and, and, the, and the inconvenience of testing. And you know, we, we want to think, I mean, the testing, if, and, and, and I've seen it myself here too. We, I, I, have been, I have been to a test center to get tested, and my experience while I went, and, and my experience was it was a negative test. And so now, uh, and I have small children in, in daycare, and, you know, so we get, sometimes we have a little throat that's itchy or whatever. I'm not running at the first itch, which actually I was supposed to do, to go and get tested right away, because I would have gone 10 times mm-hmm. already. And, and it's long, and then I have to wait for, like, a long time for the result. If I had a, a, a simple test, that would be a, no, a frontal swab, that I have the result in 15 minutes, and I, potentially I could even do it at home. Most certainly, I would be testing myself right now, right? So making the test easy, making it convenient is a very important point to consider if we want to have a wider adoption. And this is also important because people now often wait before they have symptoms before they get tested. So, so if you go back, you become infectious one or two days, maybe sometimes even three days before or let's say two days before you have symptoms. You wait two days before you get tested. You, you have another 24 or 48 hours until you have the results. So even your contacts which then they want to trace, might already have had time to infect people. And that's why then the rapid testing, so even the test might be a little bit less precise, but if the speed can be cut down, you can really cut the, the, the spread there. And so that's a very important point, uh, which, which now we're missing, basically. And so then the, the convenience, that's where there's a lot of, of potential to be done. I was saying, you know, the, the frontal nair swabbing, that's beyond being less inconvenient, it's also something people can do by themselves. So if you were going to school, I mean, I think high school students, for sure, they could do frontal swabbing with some, someone watching them and then provide the sample, and then someone could run the test. Primary school might be a bit more difficult, but you could, you could do mouse swabs potentially. And I, I've heard of pilot studies where when people don't want to have it in the nose, they swab the mouse, and they still get some, some positive results. And where this can also be very uh, an important point is that so the, the disease is spread. So most people who actually have COVID-19, they do not infect others, right? I mean, mm-hmm. say that again. So most people who are infected do not infect another person. And, and, but why is it spreading then? It's because actually a relatively small number of people actually infect many other people. And, and so what we can, and what we also know, and this is maybe the weak point of the virus and where we have a chance actually to cut it, is that for someone to get infected, it takes millions of viruses to, to spread to that people. So you have to really, someone to transmit a lot of virus. But if you have a very, if you, if you have a very high concentration of virus, then the rapid test can actually re- uh, detect it very reliably. So we, and, and this is where, of course, it would be great to get this data, and these studies are also needed. But so these rapid tests, if they miss someone who's infected, that person's probably not super infectious, whereas the, the, these so-called super spreaders, they're very likely to be very, they will very likely be, be caught up very, uh, very easily. But of course, you need to test frequently for that. And, and so that's when where the rapid tests, you know, even if the swabbing, because the collection, if the sample collection is not so great in the mouse, if you have someone who's really very infectious, there's a very high chance you'll have a lot of virus in the mouse. And, and so these this alternative swabbing methods might even work. But of course, these things, you would need to have some pilot studies to establish these protocols. Sure. And that's where I would hope the government would be a motor in driving these things and have a have basically task force 
that could start and, and address basically these uh, these kind of open questions that that still that that hold us back in, in let's say a massive deployment. Well, and that's one of the reasons I'm glad you're able to join us today, so we can have that discussion and get that information out there. I mean, we we want our government to be proactive about this and start looking for solutions instead of getting overwhelmed, uh, like we seem to do uh, with the first wave. Thank you, uh, Professor, so much for the time and all the the research you've done on this. I think you've uh, really shone the light on this for us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Take care. Professor David Junker from uh, McGill University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.